Now, this Bible study is going to be a little bit different tonight, but I think you're going to find it to be a great help in your personal Bible study. You know, so many people decide, I need to start studying the Old Testament. I need a better understanding of the Old Testament. And they find that they don't even know where to start. And a lot of times it looks so complicated that they decide it may as well still be written in the original Hebrew. And sometimes they get all discouraged before they start thinking that they're never going to be able to get it all straightened out in their mind. So tonight, this is going to be far from an in-depth Bible study. But I want us just to realize that the Old Testament is not nearly as complicated as we first thought. That there is an order to the Bible, and there is a reason why the books are placed in the way in which they're placed. For example... You know, so many times I've thought, oh, I just wish I knew where, say, the Babylonian captivity was located in the Old Testament. Or some people think, well, where do I find the reign of Saul? And many times they just think, if I just had a general idea, well, that's what we're going to do tonight. I think after we get through tonight, you're going to have a really good general overview, a good idea of where it's all found. Now, my objective is simply to put a permanent outline in your mind of the Old Testament. That's what I want to do. It's just where you just kind of have an outline of where everything is located. And if you'll stay with me and not let your mind wander, I think you'll see that it's not hard. Now, I want this Bible study to be fun. I want it to be easy. I want it to be something that when you leave that you realize that not only have you learned something, but you've had a good time. Now, we're going to go straight through the Old Testament, and I'm going to give you facts that will help clarify the order. Now, it's these facts. That's why I'm going to give you quite a few facts, but it's these facts that's going to help you get this outline in your mind. Now, the Bible's in two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it helps us to realize that that word testament simply means covenant, or it means promise. So it could be Old Testament, New Testament, Old promise, new promise, old covenant, new covenant. And it's the cross of Jesus Christ that brought in the new promise. There would not be a new covenant had it not been for the cross of Christ. Okay, I want you to look now in the book of Genesis. What does the word Genesis mean? Okay, the beginning. Now, some people are not aware that there's anything in the book of Genesis except the creation story. But I want us to see that there are a lot of beginnings in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. It tells us the beginning of the earth. It tells us about the beginning of mankind, how God created man, the beginning of sin. When God created man, he created him perfect, gave him a perfect environment. But when man sinned, he threw all of that away. So God began a plan whereby man could be saved from the destruction that he had brought on himself. So in the book of Genesis, in the book of beginnings, we're going to find the beginning of the promise of the Messiah that God was going to give. Now that promise will be carried out throughout the Old Testament, but in the book of beginnings, we find the beginning of that promise. Now once God made the promise, then God needed a family into which this Savior could be birthed. So the book of Genesis, we're going to find the beginning of this Jewish family or the beginning of this Jewish race. Now, Abraham was the father of this whole family. So Genesis tells us that God called Abraham to be the head or to be the beginning of this nation that he was about to create. 
And the book of Genesis then gives us the life story or it gives us the biography of the patriarchs of this family, how the family began. So we're going to find the life story of Abraham, the life story of his son Isaac, the life story of his grandson Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and then the life story of Jacob's 12 sons. And from those 12 sons, the family of Israel begins. And it's all recorded in this book of beginnings. Now, the book of Genesis starts with the creation, goes through the promise, and then it goes completely through the family and the 12 sons. And it ends with the 12 sons of Jacob and their families moving into Egypt so that they're going to have plenty to eat during the famine. So in essence, this is the book of Genesis. Now I want you to turn to the book of Exodus, the next book. We're going to find that 400 years pass between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And during that 400 years, we have no record. But the family is in Egypt at this time. Now the word Exodus means going out. Why is this second book called Exodus? Why is it called the going out? comes from the same root word that we get our word exit. Well, 400 years now have elapsed since the ending of the book of Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus. And during this 400 years, the family of Jacob or the family of Israel down in Egypt has become a nation, over a million men. And the Egyptian Pharaoh, he's gotten into fear because of their great number. So he decides he's going to put them into slavery so that they'll not revolt against the Egyptian government. And they've become very oppressed. So the book of Exodus begins as they're crying out to God for deliverance. Now we're going to find that Moses is the central figure in this book of Exodus. He's a descendant of Abraham. And he's the central figure because God is going to call him to lead the children of Israel or the children of Jacob out of this Egyptian bondage and lead them back to the land that God had given to their great-grandfather Abraham. So that's where this book got its name, The Going Out of Egypt. Now, Exodus records the life of Moses. It records the burning bush experience where Moses was called. It records the plagues that come on Egypt. You know, many times we wonder, where is it found in the Old Testament where the plagues came on the Egyptians? Well, it was right here when Pharaoh had hardened his heart in the book of Exodus. Then it records the first Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. Then the Ten Commandments given on Mount Sinai when they celebrate the first Pentecostal feast. Finally, it, it records the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Now, from this point on in the Old Testament, you'll hear it referred to as the 12 tribes of Israel. What are the 12 tribes of Israel? Who is Israel? Jacob. Okay, the grandson of Abraham. So the 12 tribes of Israel are the 12 sons of Jacob. Now I want you to look at this chart. The descendants of each of those sons became a tribe. I'm going to say the names just so you'll be familiar with what they sound like. Reuben, Simeon, Levi. Now he's important because he's the son that is going to be the head of the priesthood. Judah, I put it in red because this is the family, this is the son through which uh, the Messiah would be birthed. Dan, Issachar, Zebulun, Gad, Naphtali, Asher, 
Joseph, but we're going to find out later that it won't refer to the tribe of Joseph. It'll talk about the tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim because those were the two sons of Joseph and the, then Benjamin. Okay, now you've seen these different names throughout the Old Testament. Now that's where these names came from. These are the 12 sons of Jacob. Third book now is Leviticus. This is the rule book, the book of rules, the book of laws. They're named after Levi. Look at the first four letters of the word Leviticus. Levi was one of Jacob's sons, and this is important because God said that Levi and his descendants would be the priests. In other words, every son born into the family of Levi would have the honor of being a priest. So this book of Leviticus is simply the laws given to the Levites or given to the sons of Levi, and it's named after Levi. The fourth book is Numbers. Now this book is just exactly what the title says that it is. It's a census or it's a numbering of the number of people that are born into each tribe during these 40 years in the wilderness. Now there were over a million men that came out of Egypt, so it was going to take some heavy-duty record-keeping to keep up with all of the births there in the wilderness. So this book is called Numbers, but it also could have been called the book of grumbling. Now the book of Numbers is going to retell the story of the wandering in the wilderness. So the two accounts of the wilderness wandering is going to be in Exodus and in the book of Numbers. So in addition to numbering the people, this book is one long sad story of complaining and discontentment. That's why they were not allowed into the promised land. And because of that grumbling and that complaining, only three of the original adults who left Egypt, only three of the original million, lived to the end of the book of Numbers. Now, Moses lived to the end of the book, even though he didn't go on into the promised land. And the other two were two of the spies that came back with a good report, Caleb and Joshua. If you'll remember, when they came to the banks of the Jordan River the first time, each tribe selected one man to go over and spy out the land. Ten of the spies came back with a bad report and they said, we can't do it. But two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, said, yes, we can go in and take the land. Now, because the majority wanted to stay out, then they wandered in the wilderness for that 40 years. And none of the other original group, just the children born in the wilderness and Joshua and Caleb were able to go into the land 40 years later. Okay, the fifth book, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means double law. This was the second giving of the law. In other words, right before Moses died, they were on the banks of the Jordan River. This was 40 years after they had been in the wilderness. God told Moses to take all of the law that had been recorded in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers and bring it all together and write it up concisely and specifically for living in the promised land. Moses takes all of the laws, he writes one book of law, and he gives it to these new Levitical priesthood that's fixing to enter into the promised land. Now, they were not there at Mount Sinai. And so they're given this new book of law, and this is going to give them the rules by which they can live and be successful in the promised land. Now that's why the first five books are called the books of law. Also in the book of Deuteronomy, we have Moses' farewell address to the people right before he dies. And if you'll remember in Deuteronomy 28, he tells the people, 
If you obey the Lord, then these are the blessings that will come upon you. If you disobey, these are the curses that will come upon you. And he ends in Deuteronomy 30 by telling the people that they have a choice. He said, God has set before you life and death. He set before you blessing and cursing. So choose life that you and your descendants might live. This is his farewell address. This is his encouragement to the people. And they're just getting ready to move on into the promised land. After these first five books of law, at the end of Deuteronomy, they find themselves right on the border of the promised land. And from there, they go into the next 12 books of history. Now, these are called the books of history simply because these are the books containing all the biblical history of the Jewish race right up to the time of the New Covenant. Joshua is the first book of history. Moses died in the last book, in the book of Deuteronomy. They're on the border of the promised land. And now God has chosen Joshua, one of the two spies that came back with a good report. He chose Joshua to take Moses' place and lead the children of Israel on in to conquer the land. Joshua is a military leader. He was born in Egypt. Probably he was very young when they left Egypt. And he was Moses' right-hand man throughout the wilderness wandering. In fact, he went part way up on Mount Sinai when Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments. So Joshua is the obvious choice to take Moses' place. And the whole book of Joshua is simply the story of how they went in and conquered the Promised Land. So they've been gone now from the land of Israel 440 years. They've been in Egypt 400 years, and then they've spent another 40 years in the wilderness. And during this time, the land is filled up with a lot of other people. See, these people have moved in, and after 400 years of generations coming and going, they believe the land is theirs. So Joshua has to take the people in to drive the enemy out of the land. And after they drive the enemy out little by little, then the children of Israel don't just settle in the promised land at random. See, the land is divided up so that each son of Israel and his descendants is given a particular portion of land in which to settle. Now, the country is actually divided into 13 portions. Now, the Levitical priesthood, the tribe of Levi had no land inheritance because their portion was to be the Lord God himself. And Joseph's portion of land was divided between his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And all the other sons of Israel had one portion apiece, but for some reason, Dan's tribe is separated out on the map. If you'll notice an Old Testament map, one portion of Dan's land is at the extreme northern part of Israel, and another portion is on the western coast, right on the sea coast, directly across from Jerusalem, making a total of 13 portions of land. You look on a map and you try to find Joseph's portion, or if you search through the Old Testament and you try to find the tribe of Joseph, you're not going to find it listed that way. It's going to be listed as the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh because that's Joseph's two sons. Now, we don't know why, they refer to the tribes of his sons rather than to Joseph, but for some reason they do that. Now, the end of the book of Joshua records the death and the final words of Joshua. So you'll find that Moses' death and final words are at the end of Deuteronomy, 
Then the next book over, we find the death and the final words of Joshua. That's when he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Okay, now he was the beginning leader in the promised land, just as Moses was the beginning leader of the coming through the wilderness. Okay, turn to the next book, Judges. They're in the promised land now. Joshua has just died, and the government is a theocracy. Now, that simply means that God is the head of their government. And God has a line of authority. God has a judge over the people. In fact, for a period of nearly 200 years after Joshua dies, the children of Israel are under the rule of judges. Now, if you'll notice, there were no prophets in the land at that time because that judge stood between God and the people and was a mouthpiece for God. They didn't have a king. God was their king. And these judges were like military leaders. They led the people against different enemy invasions. Now, I could have listed out the judges, but the three judges that you're most familiar with are, would be Gideon. He's the one whose army was reduced from 32,000 down to 300 men. And Samson, we're familiar with Samson, and Deborah. So if you want to know something about any one of the judges, you go to the book of Judges because the whole book of Judges simply records the different judges and their reign. I think it was interesting that one of the judges, one of the military leaders, is a woman, Deborah. Now, when you know why the books of the Bible are named what they're named, then all of a sudden it makes sense. Helps you to know what the book's all about. When you know that Genesis is the book of beginnings and it's the beginning of the promise and the beginning of the, the patriarchs that make up this family into which the Messiah is going to be birthed. It helps when you know that Exodus is the going out, the going out of Egypt. And then Leviticus, the law given to the Levites. And of course, Numbers is simply the numbering of the people. It gives you another town of going through the wilderness. Deuteronomy, the double law, when the law is given the second time, right before they go into the promised land. And Joshua, the story of Joshua conquering the land. And the book of Judges, giving the life of each of the judges. Then the next book is the book of Ruth. Now this is a beautiful story of a woman named Ruth who lived during the time of the judges. Now this is quite a contrast. I think this is why they put this book next is simply because it was a little insert to tell us about the individual life, the individual customs. Now if you just read the book of Judges, you would think that all they did was just go to war all the time. We needed the book of Ruth. It's valuable because it gives us the custom of the people. It lets us know that they did, in fact, have a home life. It lets us see the strong faith of a lot of the individual people, not just the leaders, but the individual people that lived in the land. It shows us that God is intimately concerned for the individual. See, all the other books show us that God is the God of the Israelites, but this book shows us that he's also the God of the individual. Now, Ruth is not a Jew. She had married a Jewish man. She was from Moab. But after her husband died, then she accepted Jehovah as her God. She went back to the land of Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she married Boaz, became the great-grandmother of King David. So actually, it was from her line of descendants that the Messiah came. So this book is kind of a real special bonus book. Okay, the next two books of history are 1st and 2nd Samuel. Now they're going to take up right after the last judge. After the 200 years under the judges, the people began to beg God for a king. Now Samuel is generally known as the first real prophet of Israel. The people have been begging for a king and God told Samuel to tell the people no. 
But when they continue to beg, then God finally gives in and he lets them have a king. And Samuel is the one who gets to anoint the first two kings of Israel. Now, there's been no king up until now, but God tells him to go and anoint Saul. And then later he's sent to anoint David, the little shepherd boy. First and second Samuel reads just exactly like a novel, tells in detail the story of the life of Samuel, the first prophet, gives us in detail the, the biography or the life of the first king, King Saul, and the life of the second king, King David. Now, first and second Samuel are going to cover about a hundred years of Jewish history. And then first and second kings takes up right where second Samuel leaves off. First and second Samuel has given the life of the, of the first two kings. And then with first and second kings, it tells us about all the rest of the kings of Israel. Now, first kings is going to start by telling us about the close of David's reign and David's death. And then immediately, 1 Kings is going to go into the splendor and the magnificence of King Solomon's reign. It's about the magnificent temple that he built. This is David's son. Then the fourth king is Rehoboam, King Solomon's son. And during King Rehoboam's reign, so much evil goes on that we find that right after his reign, the kingdom becomes divided, right after the fourth king. Now, I used to think that Israel became a divided kingdom further down through history, but it was really early on. It was right after the fourth king. From then on, there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Now, if you'll remember, the country is long, narrow shaped, and it was cut almost in two. And the northern kingdom was called Israel, its capital was Samaria, and there were ten tribes in the northern kingdom. And then the southern kingdom was called Judah. Its capital was Jerusalem, and they're going to have two separate kings. The northern kingdom was constantly against Judah because they wanted Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem is the religious capital of the world, and they wanted Jerusalem. Even though they had ten tribes, they weren't satisfied. So we find from here on now in the book of Kings, we find that the people began to sin more and more and more. They began to worship other gods. And finally, at the end of Second Kings, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are going to be taken in captivity. Now, the northern kingdom is taken into captivity first. It's taken to Assyria. Now, Assyria is the country just north of Israel. All through the northern kingdom, they never had one good king. Every king worshipped idols. And when they were taken into Assyria, they were never heard of again. Evidently, they never repented and they never came back. Now, that's what's known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. That was the ten tribes in the northern kingdom. And then at the very end of Second Kings, it tells how the southern kingdom had gotten into so much wickedness that they were finally taken into captivity into Babylon, modern-day Iraq. They're eventually going to repent, and they're going to turn back to God and return to their homeland. But they're there for 70 years. So now the books of Kings began with a very stable United Kingdom under a very strong king, King David. Tells about the end of his life. And then it goes all the way through to the deterioration because of sin. And it ends with a total collapse of the kingdom. 
and a mass deportation of the entire nation into the Babylonian captivity. So there was a tragic end. Now, First and Second Kings covers about 400 years of history. And then First and Second Chronicles. Now, this is important. This will keep you from getting mixed up. Chronicles comes from the word that means chronological. It simply repeats the material in the previous four books. In other words, everything in First and Second Samuel, everything in First and Second Kings is put together in concise order, in chronological order, and it's put down again in just a little bit different style, but then it's called First and Second Chronicles. Now, if you don't understand that, you'll be reading along and you'll think, my goodness, I've read this before. Why is it repeating? So just remember that the total history of all the kings, even including Saul and David, whose lives were written up in First and Second Samuel, and then on through all the other kings that followed on to the Babylonian captivity, every bit of that's going to be listed in First and Second Chronicles. And then the next book of history is Ezra. Now, Ezra is a scribe, and this book is going to take up right where Second Chronicles leaves off. This is a very important book because it scales the Babylonian captivity. In other words, the first three chapters of Ezra is going to overlap Second Chronicles just a little bit because it's going to tell about the last years in Israel when idol worship was so bad. And it's going to tell how Babylon then comes in and destroys the capital city, Jerusalem and how the people are taken into exile into Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. Now Ezra lives through the whole 70 years of captivity and then he tells about the return of the children of Israel 70 years later out of captivity and how they go back to their homeland. Ezra leads in a revival at the end of the captivity period and this is what brings the people back to God. And he brings them back and helps them get started in the rebuilding of the temple. So Ezra is going to cover a lot of Jewish history. It spans that captivity period. Now, it doesn't give us much detail. Don't read that book expecting to get a lot of detail because it tells very little about the captivity. But at least it is a book that lets us see when they're taken into captivity and then when they're brought out of captivity. Now, the next book of history is Nehemiah. A lot of people think of Nehemiah as being the prophet, but he's not. Now, this book is written at the very end of the Babylonian captivity, and this was simply one of the men there in captivity. He was a cupbearer to the Babylonian king, had a lot of favor with the king. Now, I think it's interesting how even in captivity, many of the Jewish captives would find favor even in the government. Down in Egypt that happened. We, we find that happening in Babylon. And this is probably because they stood out in a crowd. They loved God. They lived good, godly lives. They were honest, and it brought favor upon them. And so Nehemiah comes into the king's presence, and his countenance has fallen. And so the king begins to say, Nehemiah, why has your countenance fallen? And he says, well, I realize that my homeland is all torn down. Jerusalem is torn down. The walls around Jerusalem are in devastation. See, God begins to lay it on his heart. He begins to let him feel homesick for his native land when it's time for him to go back. And so the king gives him permission to take some of the men and go back to Jerusalem and repair the walls around the city. So the whole book of Nehemiah is the repairing of the Jerusalem wall to get the city fortified, to get the city ready for their return. 
Now, something that's very important to remember is that after the captivity into Babylon, they are forever cured of worshiping idols. The Jewish people never worship idols again. They're totally cured. And then the last book of history is Esther. Now, Esther is sort of like the book of Ruth because Esther tells us the story of something very important that took place very soon after the Babylonian captivity was over. See, many of the Jews remained and were dispersed throughout Babylon and Persia right after the captivity ended. And Esther is the story of a Jewish girl who became queen in the foreign land of Persia and how God used her to spare the Jews. See, there was a wicked, ambitious man named Haman who wanted to totally annihilate all the Jews. See, Hitler wasn't the first. And he tricked and he deceived the king. Esther's husband, the king, did not know that she was Jewish. So this book is another little special bonus book that gives us a close-up look at history at that time. Then at the end of Esther, at this point, we are completely through the entire history of the Old Testament. This completes all of the books of history. Now, I want you to take your Bible, and with one hand, I want you to pick up all of the books, starting with Genesis, clear through Esther, and hold that with your left hand. Then with your right hand, I want you to take all the books from Job clear to the end of the Old Testament. Now, if you'll notice, it just about divides the Old Testament in half, doesn't it? Okay, you're only halfway through the Old Testament at this point, but you are completely through all of the history of the Old Testament. You know the entire history of the Jewish people. It's all recorded in the Bible right up to the time of the New Testament. So at the end of Esther, we're coming really close to the time of the Messiah, the time of the New Covenant. There's no more history to be written until the New Covenant. Now, if you understand that, you're not going to be confused when you read on past that and you find that there are a lot more Old Testament books before you get to the New Testament. Why is that? All of the Old Testament history is recorded in the first half of the Old Testament. The second half of the Old Testament is simply going to give you the books of poetry and the books of prophecy. It would be the same if we had the history of this church all written up from the beginning, the origin of this church until present day. We had every bit of it written up. And then at the end, we added in our songbook, some of the songs that we sing written out, and we added in some of the prophecies from different prophets who have come through and, and given prophecy. And we had those all listed at the end. Okay, that's exactly what had happened here. They had all of their history, then they had their songbooks, and then they had some of the prophecies written out. So that's all that's going to be left now in the Old Testament, the poetry and the prophecy. So the next five books that are in the Old Testament are called books of poetry. And the first one is the book of Job. Now, no one really knows who wrote Job or when it was written. It was probably handed down word of mouth for years and years and years before it was actually written down. But most scholars believe that it actually took place before the Abrahamic covenant before the Jewish nation had been created. And it has to be interpreted with that in mind. That's why a lot of people get into wrong theology because they try to make Job a book of theology and it's not. Now Job didn't have the same covenant that we have today. And he probably didn't even have the same covenant that Abraham had. 
if he did in fact live before Abraham or even if he was a contemporary of Abraham he still probably the Abrahamic covenant had not been actually put into being at that time now the reason that the book of Job is placed in the Bible by Psalms and by Proverbs is because it's considered to be a book of prose it's not a book of law it it doesn't give us our theology but it's a book of prose and then we have Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And they're all placed right there together because they're all books of poetry written during the period of history. Psalms is a book of songs and poems. Some of them are prophetic. You need to mark the Psalms that are prophetic. Many of them point to the Messiah. Now, many of them are written by King David. And the promises are just as much for us today as they were for the people in that day and time. Now the book of Psalms tells us how to relate to God in prayer and in praise. So it's, it's vertical. It's how to relate to God. The next one, Proverbs, those are prose or wise sayings, a lot of which were written most likely by King Solomon, David's son. And these are more horizontal. The Proverbs are how to relate to people. They're practical, down to earth, common sense. And then comes the book of Ecclesiastes. This is just more prose. And finally, the Song of Solomon, which is an allegory. Now, the Song of Solomon is the love story between a man and his wife, possibly King Solomon and, and one of his wives. But it illustrates God's love for his people Israel. That's why it's an allegory. And finally, today, it's an illustration of Christ's love for his bride, the church. And if you read it that way, then it'll really come alive and it'll mean something to you. Then after the five books of poetry, from there to the end are all books of prophets. From Isaiah, from here on to the end of the Old Testament, these are just the prophecies that are recorded and named after the prophet through whom that prophecy came. Now, they're not in chronological order, so that can be a little bit confusing. But Isaiah through Daniel, the first five, are known as the major prophets. I used to think that was because they were more important, but it's not. They're called major prophets simply because they're longer books. They're the longest. That's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Then Hosea through Malachi, the next twelve, are minor, are their short books of prophecy. Some of them are just one page long. And in these prophecies, God is foretelling the coming Messiah in detail. See, Isaiah, for instance, many of the chapters describe Jesus in so much detail, it's almost as if the prophet Isaiah had written the book after Jesus lived instead of hundreds of years before. Now, all of these prophets, all of these books of prophecy at the end of the Old Testament, all these prophets lived and wrote during the last years of the southern kingdom. You know, often we see all these books of prophecy and we think that they lived and, and that these were scattered out throughout the Old Testament history, but that's not so. Samuel, Nathan, Elijah, and Elisha were the prophets that lived scattered throughout the Old Testament history. Samuel was the prophet during King Saul's reign and during David's reign. Then when he died, Nathan became the prophet during part of David's reign. And then came Elijah and then Elisha. 
And then finally, we come to the very end of the Old Testament history, and then there's a lot of prophecies, a lot of prophets, partially because God is wanting to warn them and keep them from having to go in captivity. And part of the reason for all these prophecies is to let them know that the time of the Messiah is coming soon. Some of these prophets lived right before they were taken into captivity. The two that prophesied uh, right before the Babylonian captivity were Isaiah and Micah. Isaiah and Micah. The two prophets that prophesied to the northern kingdom to try to keep them out of captivity was Hosea and Amos. Now, the northern kingdom never returns out of captivity. But God had sent two to the northern kingdom and he sent two to the southern kingdom to try to get their attention to keep them from going into captivity. Then during the Babylonian exile, we find that there are five prophets that prophesy to the people to keep them encouraged, to keep them going with God. That's Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Daniel. And then finally, when they return, when the southern kingdom returns to their homeland, then God sends Joel, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And they're getting the people ready for the Messiah. All the prophecies are dealing with, with the coming Messiah. For instance, Joel. Joel prophesies, in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all mankind. See, it's getting close to the time of the new covenant, close to the time of the Messiah. And so that's why he's prophesying and getting them ready. Other than the one sent to the southern kingdom, we find that five have a special mission. I just named Hosea and Amos. Those two had a special mission to the northern kingdom. Then we find that Jonah and Nahum, their prophets, they had a special mission. They were sent to Nineveh, the capital city of the country that's going to overtake northern kingdom. So not only does God try to save the northern kingdom, but he also tries to save their captors. Even sends up there to, to take care of the ones that are going to take the northern kingdom into captivity. God is, is trying to get his message through to them. So four then are basically sent to the northern kingdom. And then Obadiah, this is the only one that's sent to somebody other than the Israelites. Obadiah is the messenger that is sent to prophesy to Edom. Now that's another name for Esau. So he's sent to prophesy to the descendants of Esau. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and then the twin sons Jacob and Esau? Jacob is the one that went with God, had the 12 sons, the tribes of Israel. But Esau is the one that sold his birthright. He was a godless man. And yet years later, God sends a prophet to his descendants. Now the Old Testament gives us the progressive revelation that they had of God. Now they have a limited progressive revelation of God. But this is how we have revealed to us through the Old Testament these things about God as they knew him. Now, very, very little was revealed about Satan in the Old Testament because they had no power with which to stand against Satan until Jesus won the victory. Their only protection was hiding in God. So very little is directly written about Satan. Isaiah and Ezekiel have a chapter apiece describing Satan. So if you want to do any kind of a study 
of Satan in the Old Testament, this is where you'll find your information. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel chapter 28. Genesis mentions Satan, the serpent. Job is going to mention Satan. And there's one verse in 1 Chronicles 21.1. Other than that, he's not mentioned directly. Why do we need to study the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament is so important because it is a type and shadow of everything important and significant that's going to take place in the New Covenant. It's like the little verse, the new is in the old contained and the old is by the new explained. You could turn that around. The old is in the new contained and the new is by the old explained. And so that's why you have to take the Old Testament and take it in and understand it because that helps you to see that God was foretelling what he was going to do under the new covenant. He was foretelling that years and years and years in advance. Now Jesus says in Luke 24 verse 44 that everything written in the law, in the prophets, and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And we have that symbolized on the Mount of Transfiguration when James and John and Peter and Jesus go up on the Mount and Moses and Elijah meet with them. Moses is representing the law. Elijah is representing the prophets. And Jesus quoted from the Old Testament. And he also said, I didn't come to abolish, but I came to fulfill the law. Now, the Old Testament ends with the prophecy of Malachi saying, I will send you Elijah the prophet. And then from there, we have 400 years of silence between the Old and the New Testament. There's no voice of God in the land. Nothing is recorded. And the next time a prophet is heard in the New Testament, it's when John the Baptist, in the spirit of Elijah, comes forth saying, Repent, for the Messiah is at hand. So the Old Testament ends talking about Elijah, and the New Testament begins with John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah. And I want you to see the significance, because Malachi had said, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the day of the Lord. John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah. Now, during this 400 years between the Old and the New Testament, this is the time of Alexander the Great. This is the time of the Maccabees when they revolted against the persecution of the Jews and their temple. Then they came under Greek kings, that's where the Greek mythology comes from. That's why the New Testament was written in the Greek. And then right before the time of Messiah, the country of Israel has come under Roman rule. That's why the Bible says in the fullness of time, the Messiah is born. So this fulfills now all of the Old Testament prophecies. I told you that this was not going to be an in-depth study. That was not my objective. I wanted to give you just a neat little outline in your mind so that you would get an idea of the order in which the Old Testament was given. That'll help you to know where to find things, where to go. Make it not quite so hard, not quite so complicated. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I want you to close your notes. I want you to close your Bible. And I'm just going to give you a little test. You just answer out as you know the answer. In fact, the more that answer it, the better. That'll let me know that you've all gotten this. What does the word Genesis mean? Good. Beginnings. What beginnings? The beginning of the earth. Yes. The beginning of mankind. 
good. The beginning of sin. And because of the sin then, there had to be the beginning of the promise of God to send a Messiah. Good. The beginning of the Jewish race, the family into which this promise would be birthed. What else? Good. The, the life story of the biography of the forefathers of the Jewish race. Good. Who were they? Who were the patriarchs? Abraham. Good. Isaac. Jacob. His name was changed to what? Israel. And then the twelve sons. Good. How does Genesis end? All twelve sons of Jacob and their families going into Egypt to live during the famine. How many years between the end of Genesis and the start of Exodus? Good, 400 years. What happened during that 400 years? The 12 sons of Jacob grow to over a million. They grow into a nation and they become enslaved. What does the second book, Exodus, mean? Going out. Going out of what? Okay, going out of Egypt. Now, I named six things recorded in the book of Exodus. What were they? Life of Moses. His call, yes. The burning bush. The, the plagues over the Egyptians. The first Passover, yes, the crossing of the Red Sea, good. The, yes, the commandments given on Mount Sinai and what else? Okay, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. What are the 12 tribes of Israel? Good, the 12 sons of Jacob and, and their descendants. Can you name any of them? Manasseh, yes. Dan, Issachar, good. Simeon, Levi, Judah, good. Reuben, Gad, very good. Okay, the third book. What does Leviticus mean? Anybody remember? Okay, who was Levi? One of the sons. The laws were given to Levi. Why? Because God said that Levi and his descendants would be the priests forever. Okay, the fourth book. What's in the book of Numbers? This was the census, yes. All the ones born in the wilderness. What else is recorded in Numbers? what kept the children of Israel from going into the promised land. Good. Okay. It records the wilderness wanderings and how they grumbled and complained. Who of the original million who came out of Egypt got to go into the land? Joshua and Caleb. Why? Because they came back and gave a good report. They trusted God. The fifth book, what was it? Deuteronomy. What does it mean? Good. Double law. The second giving of the law. Okay, what did this set of laws consist of and, and what were they for? Okay, good. A combination of all the laws from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. God told Moses to put it together in one book in a concise way and to give it to the new priesthood, the new generation for living in the promised land. Okay, now with this in mind, what are the first five books of the Old Testament called? Books of Law. What are the next 12 books called? Books of history. All of the history of the Jewish nation during the Old Covenant. Okay, what's the first book of history? Joshua. Who was Joshua and what's in this book? Okay, Joshua is the man who took Moses' place. He's a military leader, yes. Led the people on into conquering the land. Good. So it includes the life of Moses, the military leader. Okay, the book of Judges is next. 200 years under the rule of Judges. Who were the Judges? Okay, this is the time before there was a king in the land? Yes, and God was ruling the people through Judges. This is the life story of all the different Judges. Okay, name me three of those Judges. 
Deborah, Gideon, yes. Samson, Ruth, the next book of history. Why was this book important? <laughs> yes, it was a, a bonus book. Why? Okay, it tells us the customs. Gives us a look at the individual people and God's concern for them. First and second Samuel tells us the life of what three people? Okay, the, the life of Samuel. Who was Samuel? He's the first prophet. They've not needed a prophet before. Why? Okay, they've not needed a prophet before because they've had God as their king. Now they're going to have a king, so they're going to need a prophet so that God can speak to his people. What else does First and Second Samuel include? Okay, the biography of the first king Saul and the biography of the second king David covers a hundred years of history. First and second kings. Okay, all the rest of the kings are recorded in first and second kings. How does first kings begin? With the death of King David. And it goes right on in to describe the magnificent kingdom of his son, King Solomon, and the building of Solomon's temple. Okay, what happened to the nation at the first of the book, right after King Solomon's son takes over? Okay, because of sin, the country becomes divided right after the fourth king, yes. What was the northern kingdom called? Israel, good. The capital, Samaria. The southern kingdom is called what? Judah. The capital, Jerusalem, good. Okay, how many tribes in the northern kingdom? Ten. How did the book of Second Kings end? Okay, it ends with the captivity. Where was the northern kingdom taken captive? Okay, into Assyria. Never heard of them again. They never had a good king. Southern kingdom. They were taken into captivity into Babylon. Why? Because of idolatry. Good. Okay, first and, and second chronicles. What does chronicles mean? Chronological. Good. What does it contain? Yes, all the history of the last four books, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, the history of all the kings from Saul on clear until the Babylonian captivity. Okay, the next book of history is Ezra. He was a scribe. Okay, what does his book contain? It contains a story of the last kings, yes, the idolatry, okay, and, and taken into captivity. What else? Destruction of Jerusalem. And it skips 70 years and tells us what? The revival, yes, over in the captivity, and what? The return, and one more thing. Okay, the starting of the rebuilding of the temple. So it covers a lot of history, not a lot of detail, but, you know, it, it gives us the general essence of it. Next book of history, Nehemiah. Was he a prophet? No, he wasn't. Okay, this was written at the end of the Babylonian captivity. Who was Nehemiah? Okay, he was the cupbearer to the Babylonian king. What does he do? He comes back and rebuilds the walls over, around Jerusalem. What did the exile into Babylon accomplish? They never worshipped idols again, right? Okay, make a note of that. All right, the last book of history, what was it? Esther. When was it written? Okay, it was written right after the Babylonian captivity was over. She was a Jewish girl, the queen. God used her to save the people. She was a queen of Persia. Okay, now this takes care of all of the Old Testament history from Joshua taking them into the land through the period of the judges, through all of the kings, the captivity. They're back in their homeland again. Although we're through all of the Old Testament history, we've only gone half through the Old Testament. So what's left? 
five books of poetry, what are they? Job, Psalms, good. What else? Ecclesiastes, yes. Proverbs, yes. Song of Solomon, good. What was Song of Solomon? An allegory, yes. Having to do with a man and his love for his wife, but it was illustrating God's love for Israel. And what else? Christ's love for his bride, yes. Now, the rest of the Old Testament are books of what? Prophecies, good. Some of these prophets at the end lived right before the exile, some during the exile, yes, and some right after the exile. What do these prophecies mainly contain? Trying to warn them to repent so they won't go into captivity. What else? Okay, the coming Messiah, because see, they're getting near the end of the Old Testament. The other prophets, when did they live? Okay, they lived during the time of the kings, so where is their life recorded? Name some of them. Good, Samuel's the first one. Good, Nathan. Elijah and Elisha, yes. So when's their life recorded? Where? Okay, back during First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, during the period of history. All of these prophecies at the end, they live at the end of the Old Testament history. So all of these prophets now are dealing with Judah. They're dealing with the southern kingdom, except five who have a special mission. Do you remember those? Which two were sent to the northern kingdom? Hosea and Amos. Good. Which two were sent to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyria that was going to overtake the northern kingdom? Which two prophets? Jonah? Yes. Anybody remember the other one? Okay, that was Nahum. And then one prophet was sent to somebody other than Israel. Obadiah, good. Sent to the descendants of Esau, which are the Edomites. Why is the Old Testament important? Apart from just giving us some good information about the Jewish people. Good, it's a type and shadow of the things that are going to come under the new covenant. Luke 24, 44, all the things written about me, Jesus said, in the law of the prophet and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, these promises are for us, too, because we are the spiritual Israel. You did really well. I'm very pleased. You listened well. Well, I hope this is going to give you a little outline in your mind so that it's going to make the Old Testament just a little bit easier. I don't want it to be complicated. I want it to be easy. You're going to find yourself enjoying the Old Testament as you understand the order and the reason behind why these books are, are placed in the order in which they're placed. And also, it's going to help you just knowing the, the title of the book is going to help you know what's in it. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Old Testament. I thank you, Lord, that you gave us that Old Testament. And in that Old Testament contains all of, of the wonderful things that you had planned for us under the New Covenant. Lord, I thank you for the promise of the Messiah. I thank you for developing a nation through which this promise could come about. I thank you, Lord, that you kept that promise. I thank you that you did deliver the Messiah who came and lived and died and was resurrected that we might have life everlasting. Lord, I thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that the Word of God will come alive on the inside of us and that we will make it, in fact, the final authority in every area of our life. In Jesus' name.